You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, MD, Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Wit, Pablo, Nikki, Trey, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today's episode was going to be a Henry Every episode, a pure Henry Every episode. But as I delved into the first act of this Henry Every episode, I realized that its significance was much more significant than I had anticipated. So today's episode will be less of a Henry Every episode, and more an episode about the political and mostly military forces at play in England in the summer of 1690. More, it's a story about the first major defeat suffered by England in the Nine Years' War. This is episode 190, The Battle of Beachy Head. If we're talking about the highest echelons of English politics, there's Nowhere to begin but with the king and queen. I find that I'm often guilty of overlooking Queen Mary II. William and Mary were, after all, co-monarchs with equal power. There are a few reasons for that, I think. Partly it's by design, by the design of the royal family. Queen Mary always purposefully took a back seat to her husband. But in part, of course, it's the war. William III was the commander-in-chief of the forces of England, after all. When it comes to pirates and privateers, he was the supreme military commander responsible for all of that. William's name appears on the commissions of privateers like William Kidd and Thomas II. Ultimately, William III was Henry Every's boss. But I think also it has to do with the parliament. When William and Mary ascended the throne, their royal powers were significantly curtailed. They're considered, and really are, the first constitutional monarchs in England. And for that alone, if not a number of other things, I think Queen Mary deserves a fair bit of credit. If 
one has to have a monarch, and, you know, I don't know that they do, but if you do have a monarch, Queen Mary was really setting the tone, the, the template for what that should look like. Rather than ruling, Queen Mary proved herself to be an effective administrator. The Privy Council, which was really her Privy Council, William had his own council of war, but the Privy Council were doing the job, the day-to-day -day work of running the government. But it was Mary who oversaw those ministers. And if you're going to have a monarch as a chief executive, that's what I want out of my chief executive. When it came to her active day-to-day -day duties, Mary spent most of her time overseeing the church, the reforming and reorganizing and safeguarding of the Anglican Church. But with all of that said, it's really not Queen Mary or William with which we're concerned today. Instead, we're going to be talking about a lot of military officers, naval officers in particular, and I'm going to throw a bunch of names at you. But honestly, with a couple of exceptions, you don't really need to remember any of them. Aside from, of course, Henry Every. He's here today, during this whole story. Now, aside from doing his job on board his ship, he's not really a key player. But I want you to keep him in mind. As a Royal Navy sailor who's going to go on to become one of the most famous pirates of all time, the story today is going to shape Henry Every. It's going to mold who he becomes. Now, this story takes place during the Williamite War in Ireland, as does so much of the early war at sea. The Battle of Beachy Head is a direct result of the Williamite War, but it's not really a part of it. You'll recall, though, that James Stuart, the deposed King James II, gathered his forces in France. One of his top lieutenants, Earl Tyr Connell, built up Jacobite forces in Ireland. James landed his initial invasion force in Ireland with 2,600 French and English soldiers. It was a small force, but in conjunction with the Jacobite forces raised by Tyr Connell, James led a well-run campaign against the Irish Protestants loyal to King William. That campaign went well for about a month until King William sailed his own forces over to Ireland to counter it. And that is where the naval trouble began. See, King James had almost no navy. There were a few officers who had taken their ships after the Revolution, but for the most part, King James relied on Louis XIV and the French navy for all of his sea power. That brings us to the Battle of Bantry Bay. That's the battle in which King Louis engaged a fleet to ferry over troops and supplies to support James in Ireland. That was Henry Every's first documented naval battle of any real consequence. Every sailed under Captain Francis Wheeler, and Wheeler sailed under Admiral Arthur Herbert. Herbert was a luminary of the Royal Navy. Remember, he was the commander who came up with the phrase and the concept a fleet in being. He's going to be a key player today. But of course, the English lost that battle. The French, under their admiral, the Marquis de Chateau-Renal, sailed out of the port at Brest to deliver those supplies to Ireland. They were successful in that. But the French were battered at the Battle of Bantry Bay, and they returned to the port at Brest in disarray. 
While they repaired and refitted their ships, Chateau Renault left them. He sailed off to take up another command. Now, the fleet at Brest was given to his vice-admiral, the Comte de Tourville, another key player today. But the English really weren't in much better shape than the French. Admiral Herbert pulled back to the mouth of the Thames to refit his fleet. That's where Captain Wheeler and Henry Avery and nearly everybody else under Wheeler's command, that's where they transferred over to HMS Albemarle, where Avery was promoted to a master's mate. But as all of this refitting and repairing was going on, everybody was keeping their eyes turned to the south. In the Mediterranean Sea, both England and France had fleets that were vying for control. An English admiral named Kilgrew commanded a fleet down there that was intended to counter the Toulon fleet. The Toulon fleet was kind of like the, uh, the Biscayners, maybe, or the Windward fleet. A powerful, frightening force commanded by, in this case, the Marquis de Chateau Renault. The Toulon fleet was a powerhouse. Now, Kilgrew did a fine job countering French dominion in the Mediterranean, as well as could be expected, at least. But then, one day in early 1690, the Toulon fleet just disappeared. Kilgrew just couldn't find them. Problem is, he couldn't get word to England about this disappearance, not in time to do any good, at least. By the time anyone had noticed this absence, the Toulon fleet under Chateau Renault had sailed beyond the Pillars of Hercules and into the Atlantic Ocean. They were leaving the Mediterranean and heading north. Now, Kilgrew engaged in what's... Well, this is one of those stories that I can easily imagine in the form of, you know, a thick hardback book. The type of book read by old men with a mint julep and a pipe sitting on the porch for hours on end. This was a desperate and ultimately doomed, yet courageous naval action undertaken by Kilgrew. He opened up his sails, full sail, and chased after the Toulon fleet as hard as possible. You know, if we were telling that story, we could imagine the speech that Kilgrew gave to his men about catching their mortal enemy and saving England of the hardships and sacrifices made on this chase. But of course, this isn't that story. Because Kilgrew, in the end, failed to catch Chateau Renault. He came close, very near Cadiz in Spain, but the wind and the weather turned against him. Now, we know today, thanks to their ship's logs, but Neither Kilgrew nor Chateau Renault knew it at the time, but we know that the two fleets were very nearly within a few leagues of each other. Kilgrew almost had them. But in the disarray following a storm, the French slipped away. And it was at that point when he reassembled his fleet that Kilgrew decided it was time to turn around, to sail back to the Mediterranean. As it would turn out, this was a fateful decision. But, I mean, we can all understand the instinct, I think. Kilgrew had abandoned his post in the Mediterranean. 
They were far from their assigned location, and the Admiral was operating on his own authority. He didn't have orders here. He might just get in trouble for chasing Chateau Renault down into the Atlantic. But of course the opposite turned out to be true. In part because of this decision to turn around and head back, giving Chateau Renault free reign over the Atlantic, Kilgrew would, later on, fall under suspicion. It's something that we're going to begin to see more and more of in William and Mary's England. If a commander, or a lord, or an MP even, or almost anyone in their kingdom failed them, the possibility that that failure would be accused of Jacobite sympathies could get really serious. Kilgrew was going to be accused of those sympathies. He was going to be demoted from his field command to what amounted to a paper-pushing desk job at the Admiralty. And later on, we'll see major figures in the English government, men like John Churchill, that are going to fall under the same dark cloud. Which is, you know, that's crazy. Churchill wasn't a Jacobite, not by any stretch of the imagination. But he was a man who had the connections, you know, through his wife, mostly, but he had the connections and the guts to tell William and Mary things that they did not want to hear. Therefore, he would fall under suspicion. It's it's handy to have a religious and social boogeyman to pin on all of your enemies. Oh, this guy disagrees with us? Well, he must be some kind of crypto-Catholic Jacobite loyalist, right? But if Kilgrew had not turned back here, if he had not decided to return back to the Mediterranean, if he'd kept up the chase, he could have miraculously, at the eleventh hour, at the perfect moment, turned up behind the French fleet at perhaps the most critical moment in the battle to come. He could have saved the day for England. That hypothetical moment, had that been the case, that would make Kilgrew's voyage worthy of the thickest of old novels read by old men on the porch, the longest of old movies watched by old men on Thanksgiving afternoon. But that's not the story we have. Instead, at this point, there are essentially four fleets in play. The Toulon fleet under Admiral Chateau Renal was in the Bay of Biscay between Spain and France, but they were headed for the Channel. Another French fleet under the Comte de Tourville was still lingering at Brest. Then there's that Dutch fleet I mentioned. They were busy guarding the Channel, and we should note their admiral. Cornelis Evertsen is a name that you may remember, the elder Cornelis Evertsen was involved in some of the absolutely stunning Dutch privateer raids in the 1630s and 1640s. His son, Cornelis Evertsen the Younger, was a major player in the West Indies during the buccaneering era. We ran into him while talking about Henry Morgan more than a few times. But this Cornelis Evertsen, Cornelis Evertsen the Youngest, was admiral of the Dutch Channel Fleet here in the summer of 1690. And then there's the English Channel Fleet, still at anchor at the mouth of the Thames under Arthur Herbert, the Earl of Torrington. But there, at the mouth of the Thames and in London, is where the drama is to be found. Arthur Herbert was the captain 
that carried the invitation to William, the invitation to invade England, just a couple of years ago, back in 1688. Herbert was an early and passionate Williamite who was raised to the peerage, made the Earl Torrington by William himself. Immediately after William and Mary's accession, he was briefly the Lord High Admiral. It was a temporary posting, kind of an acting Lord High Admiral, but that's the sort of trust that King William put in Arthur Herbert. By this point in his career, he was first Lord of the Admiralty. Herbert's assessment of the naval situation was counter to that of some of the more powerful lords in London. There were three men in particular who disagreed with Herbert's assessment of the situation. Thomas Osborne, Duke of Leeds, Marquess of Carmarthen, was President of the Royal Council. He was perhaps the top figure in English politics after the King and Queen. Now, we're not going to dwell on his resume. We'll have a lot more to say about Osborne in days to come, but his voice in this matter, as in all matters, carried a lot of weight. More, though, we have the Earl of Nottingham. Nottingham was a rich and powerful politician. He was the kind of guy who grew up in a palace, who went to Oxford. At 32, he entered the Parliament, and at no point in those 32 years before entering politics did he serve in any active military role. But in 1682, when his father died, when he was raised to the earldom, he was made First Lord of the Admiralty. He would serve later, as a time, as naval treasurer. Nottingham, though, was a politician. That's what his role was, that's what his job was. But for him, that meant that his own gain would always come first, even before that of the country. Those are the two names, in addition to Henry Every, you will need to remember, Leeds and Nottingham. Not a lot, you know, they're not going to be on the test, but those two are going to continue to be major political players all the way through Queen Anne's War. Their decisions, especially those of Osborne, are going to impact the pirates in Nassau in major ways. But then we have a third name, Edward Russell, Earl of Orford. The one thing I'll say for Russell here is that he, at least, unlike the others, had at some point in his life commanded ships. He'd been captain of half a dozen or more third- and fourth-rate ships of the line. Thanks to his disloyal tendencies, he'd been fired by James II, and raised back to Admiral when William III took the throne. For a time, shortly after the Glorious Revolution, when Arthur Herbert had served as acting Lord High Admiral, he had served as acting Admiral of the Channel Fleet. But after all the reshuffling was done, when Arthur Herbert fell into his role of First Lord of the Admiralty, Orford was effectively demoted to just a Lord of the Admiralty a position that found itself stuck on land, in London, directly under the supervision of Admiral Arthur Herbert. Effectively, Orford was kicked down a rung on the ladder by Arthur Herbert. Those three men, though, Leeds, Nottingham, and Orford, were all at court. They were all men who had Queen Mary's ear. 
and they formed a united front. They were all of the opinion that the French were weak in their fleet at Brest. It was battered and bedraggled. It was tiny and ineffectual. If Admiral Herbert were any kind of commander at all, he would sail out immediately and crush them because that's what Englishmen do. Now we should remember that Arthur Herbert actually fought this force at the Battle of Bantry Bay. He argued that the French fleet was much stronger than any of these three men said. He argued that they were waiting in the port at Brest not because they were unable to fight, but because they didn't need to. He argued that the French fleet was a fleet in being. Their presence was such that the onus was on the English to take back control from them. And if they were to strike, Arthur Herbert argued, they needed to do so when the time was right, and right now the time was most certainly not right. But Leeds and Nottingham and Orford called him a coward. They called him a weakling. I mean, after all, it's not like the French have the Marquis de Chateau Renal with them or anything. He was in the Mediterranean, so what are you waiting for? All three men were known to insinuate at court, so we can assume that they were much more direct and private, but they insinuated that Herbert was no better than a traitor. His reluctance, his unwillingness to fight for England, showed him to be probably a closet Jacobite, filthy, treasonous scum. Keep in mind, they were saying this about the man who had carried the invitation to William. Osborne had argued loudly, vociferously, against William coming to England, but here he was, calling the man who invited William to come into England a traitor. The man who had, on peril of his own head, helped to aid William in taking the throne. None of this, none of what those men were saying about him was true, but those three nobles were playing politics, the worst kind of politics. They were pushing Queen Mary and Admiral Herbert into waters that were dangerous, not just for themselves, but to the very realm itself. They were pushing England into dangerous waters purely for their own personal and professional gain. Is it despicable? Absolutely. Was it effective? Oh, you know it was. The queen was beginning to listen to these snakes in the grass. Mary gave these lords permission to draft orders for Arthur Herbert, Earl of Torrington. Those orders, signed by Orford and countersigned by Nottingham, on authority of the crown, remember, those ordered Admiral Herbert to sail out and fight the French. And Herbert really didn't want to go. He called a council of his commanders to discuss what they should do, but the orders were clear. It was agreed that any hesitation or reluctance on his part would be seen as treason. Might even see him, you know, tossed into the Tower of London or put on trial. So Admiral Herbert ordered that their sails be unfurled, that the flags be raised, and that the fleet advance into the channel. The combined English forces had three squadrons. The vanguard out front was the Dutch squad, led by Cornelis Evertsen. The center squadron, the largest, 
of the English forces was going to be commanded by Admiral Herbert personally. That's where HMS Albemarle and Henry Every were stationed. And then bringing up the rear was a North Sea unit commanded by Vice Admiral Delaval. That fleet, on Crown orders, sailed southwest down the Channel, about halfway from London to the Isle of Wight. The fleet moved cautiously. Herbert really didn't want to be here. And they wanted to avoid any unnecessary surprises, but they were going to be surprised regardless. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Beachy Head is a location that most of you have seen. If you watch movies, anything from James Bond to Harry Potter to almost any war film about the Battle of Britain, you've seen Beachy Head or something very like it. Those towering white cliffs overlooking the English Channel, the cliff face that runs along so much of England's southern coast, those white cliffs are the setting for a battle that was about to turn the air black with smoke and to turn the sea red with blood. The French were coming up from the southwest, heading northeast, and three matching squadrons. Now, that's not the surprise. Naval formations in this kind of battle of the line were almost always split into this three-squad formation. The surprise when the English encountered the French fleet was the size of the French force. Chateau Renal and the entire Toulouse squadron wasn't supposed to be there. They were supposed to be in the Mediterranean. And yet here he was, Chateau Renal and his entire squadron in the van. They were to counter the Dutch fleet under Evertsen. Now the center of the French fleet was led by Admiral Tourville, and the rear was commanded by yet another son of a famous West Indies commander, Victor Marie d'Estrée. So you've got three squadrons on each side, a powerful van, a large center, and a slightly less powerful rear guard. The two fleets spotted each other around 8 a.m. on 10th July 1690, just off the coast of Beachy Head, in full view of those towering white cliffs. Thanks to the surprise arrival of the Marquis de Chateaubernal, the French fleet was comprised of 75 ships of the line, with 23 fire ships to back them up. The combined English and Dutch fleet had only 56 ships of the line. 
The vanguards under Chateau Renal and Evertson tacked to the north to face off. De Stray and De Laval, in their respective rears, pulled to the south, while Admirals Tourville and Herbert made up the center bodies. From the very outset of the battle, even before a shot was fired, everybody knew how terribly mismatched this contest was. Evertson's fleet, well, Evertson was the youngest son of a famous admiral who was arguably there thanks to nepotism. And he was facing off against the most famous admiral in the French Navy, an admiral who at this point had almost double the ships in his squad. This wasn't going to go well for Evertson. And the fighting almost immediately devolved as soon as shots began to be fired into a a fierce, a bloody fight. Ships were being lost within the hour, and all of them were on the side of the Dutch under Evertson. From moment one, from, you know, 8.30 in the morning, it was a desperate, desperate bid to survive. Now, Admirals Herbert and Tourville were relatively evenly matched in the center. They could have stood there and fired it out all day long, but they never came into contact with one another. Tourville, rather than advance and attack, let his squad drift with the wind, which was blowing to the southwest. He was drifting backwards from the line of battle. It wasn't a retreat, but it created a dip in the French line. A semicircle, a crescent, into which Admiral Herbert allowed himself to be drawn. He was trying to engage with the enemy, but still he never came into range with the French. Now, the battle to the south, the rearguard action between De Laval and Destray, they were more evenly matched than the north. The battle held up for a couple of hours of near-constant bombardment, but as time went on, the battle began to turn more and more in the French favor. English losses began to stack up to the north and to the south all the while. Admiral Herbert was just unable to even engage with the enemy. That left Admiral Herbert with three options. He could continue this course of action. He could continue to chase Tourville down the center, all while his fleet was blown to the bottom of the channel. Or he could choose to aid either Delaval or Evertson. Or, third, he could split up his forces and attempt to bolster both of them. Now, as an experienced, age-of-sail naval commander myself, let me tell you what I think Herbert should have done here. Aside from, well, honestly, he should have just surrendered immediately, but if he wanted to have any chance of winning this battle, I think Admiral Herbert should have sacrificed the southern squad abandoned de Laval, and joined forces with Evertson in the north. If things had gone their way, which wasn't likely, but at least possible, but he may have been able to crush Chateau Renal alongside Evertson before Tourville arrived with his center force. If they could have forced Chateau Renal to withdraw, then Evertson and Herbert together could have turned their forces on Tourville. They would have had to fight Tourville immediately after, and everyone would have been exhausted, but it would have given them a chance. Instead of that, though, Admiral Herbert decided to split his center force, his large main body, into three smaller squadrons. 
He was going to try to support both Evertson and de Laval while holding the center. Herbert was trying to achieve everything, and yet he would achieve nothing. The squadron he sent north to bolster Evertson, led by Vice Admiral John Ashby, failed to line up with their Dutch allies. Instead of joining the line and opening fire, as he should have done, thanks mostly to the rough channel winds, Vice Admiral Ashby drifted right into the line of fire between the two opposing forces. Now this was a mistake, not, you know, not a tactical mistake, this was an accident, he didn't mean to do this. And his blunder did manage to soak up some of the French fire for a while, which sounds great, but really didn't help. Rather than bolster the line of Cornelis Evertson, all Ashby did was force Evertson to open up sail and move around this English squadron that had just arrived on the scene. They had to get a line of fire on the French, which took time. It takes so much time, in fact, that by the time Evertson had made it all the way around this English squadron to reform the line, Ashby had taken a pounding. He had to pull back from the line that he had inadvertently created. That means that once again Evertson, who had had no break, no opportunity to turn the tide, had to resume a losing battle. So, thanks for absolutely nothing, John Ashby. When Vice Admiral Ashby pulled back, Evertson, who was just getting into place, decided, well, he decided to retreat himself. He just kept on sailing. Thanks to the ineptitude of Admiral John Ashby, the Dutch and this English Northern Squadron pulled out of the fighting. The Northern flank had been lost in the battle, thanks to one disastrous mistake. Now to the south, the squad that had been sent to bolster de Laval did a much better job. They almost turned the tide against the southern French squadron under Destray, but when that north squadron fell, when that flank fell, Chateau Renal was free to pull all of his forces to the northeast and to flank the rest of the center under Admiral Herbert. The English center now faced Chateau Renal to the north and Admiral Tourville to the southwest. They were effectively surrounded. Henry Every's HMS Albemarle was surrounded. Now this gave the French Admiral Tourville plenty of leeway. He took advantage of the situation and split his own center squadron. Half of his French center peeled off to similarly flank Admiral de Laval in the south. By about 4 p.m., on July the 10th, both the English center and the English south were outflanked. They were surrounded and outgunned by a significant margin. Admiral Arthur Herbert, Earl of Torrington, gave the order to retreat. It was a disastrous loss for England. Now, had Tourville pursued the English, he could have crushed them completely. I'm talking about demolishing the entire English and most of the Dutch naval presence in the Channel. That would have been a coup. That would have meant that the Nine Years' War could have become the One Year War. It would have been a quick and decisive French victory that, rather than being a major chapter in history textbooks, would be a, a footnote. 
but of course those textbooks would be written in French. But Admiral Tourville did not pursue the English. Instead, he pulled back to lick his own wounds, which, it was a mistake on his part. He would be reprimanded by the crown, but it's not going to affect his career. Within a couple of years, Admiral Tourville was going to earn a marshal's baton. This was a smashing victory over England, and everybody knew it. Admiral Herbert knew it, as did everybody at court in London. When he returned to England, Admiral Herbert was arrested. He was thrown in the Tower of London and brought up on charges. All of this on the expert legal counsel of a bunch of men who had a lot to gain from Herbert's downfall, the very same cabal of snakes that pushed Admiral Herbert into a fight he did not think he could win in the first place. You know, Leeds and Orford and Nottingham, they were behind it all. They all brought charges and they all testified against Admiral Herbert. It's from his trial that we get open claims that Herbert was a Jacobite. The arguments that Admiral Herbert was an alcoholic who, rather than spend his days leading his sailors, was known to bring two or three working women on board his craft to while away his days rather than do his job. Now, none of that's true. At least, when evidence was presented, Admiral Herbert was acquitted on all charges. But his career, well, it was in shambles. Admiral Herbert would retire from public life and effectively off the pages of history. The Earl of Orford, a lord of the Admiralty who had been demoted, kicked down a rung on the ladder, remember? Well, he walked back up. He was made First Lord of the Admiralty once again under the Lord High Admiral. All of this really seems to have worked out for the lords there in England who had conspired against Herbert. But while those three men benefited greatly, the price for England was high. Their naval strength took a serious hit at Beachy Head. There were huge losses in manpower and in guns and ships, losses that would take years to properly replace, but the biggest loss, the most immediate, was a loss in morale. The English Navy was not used to losses like this. The English people weren't used to losses like this. It came as a shock to every sailor in the Royal Navy, both those who were there at Beachy Head and those who weren't. It shook the people of England and of the colonies. And perhaps most importantly to our story, it came as a shock to all of those private naval contractors on which England so very much relied. Only a few weeks after the Battle of Beachy Head had been brought to its disastrous conclusion, the master's mate of HMS Albemarle, Henry Every, resigned his post in the Royal Navy. He left the Navy. And he wasn't alone. A bunch of his shipmates did so as well, as did men from all over the Navy. All across the world, privateers, men like Thomas too, began to question if sailing for England was still a good idea. At Beachy Head, England had very nearly lost the war. The entire war, and everybody knew it. If Tourville had pursued the English they would have been out of a job. A lot of those privateers, dozens of them, hundreds of them, all in all, it would turn out to be thousands of them, 
decided that sailing for England was no longer a good idea. Instead, those Royal Navy men and those privateers decided it would be better to sail for themselves. Nearly all of them eventually sailing to Madagascar. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. And everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family. You all make this possible. Thanks for all the support. All of you, I mean it. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight